It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Jim, I'm just back from a trip to Israel, and to my surprise, a considerable surprise, I found someone who is somewhat hopeful about a peaceful future between Israelis and Palestinians. That does sound surprising, although maybe not so surprising for a guy who started a podcast called How Do We Fix It? Israelis and Palestinians, the case for confederation. Dahlia Shenlin. Do you have hope? I do have hope because I work in other countries and I've worked in other post-conflict societies, some of which people were convinced could never be resolved and have reached a level of um, post-conflict stability. I don't think there is such a thing as perfect peace. You know, we can do better. So, And people eventually do want to do better. So I have hope. I think the reason why I have been deeply invested in advancing the idea of a two-state confederation is that I think it's more realistic. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? When you hear the phrase Middle East peace process or Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, do your eyes kind of glaze over? They, tell, tell me honestly now. They certainly did before my recent trip. Uh, for years, Jim, there's been virtually no sign of progress. Jewish settlements getting ever larger in the occupied territories where Palestinians live. Hamas control in the Gaza Strip continues to be absolute. And the suffering and violence go on. You know, in 1993, during the Oslo Peace Accords, Israel accepted the PLO as the representative of the Palestinians. The PLO renounced terrorism and recognized Israel's right to existence. The problem looked like it was on the verge of being solved, but then it didn't. Yeah, at that time, at least, hopes were high for a two-state solution. But 25 years later, the Palestinian West Bank remains under Israeli military control, and the tiny territory of Gaza is in desperate poverty, its borders sealed off. Our guest is Dahlia Shendlin, an Israeli public opinion analyst and strategic consultant who specializes in peace and conflict resolution. Most of her work is in Israel, but she also has an expertise in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Dahlia is the co-host of the podcast, The Tel Aviv Review, and I spoke to her days ago when I was in yeah, Tel Aviv. You didn't take me along on this trip, Richard. We <laughs> could have made a great team. I think we could have done, yeah. But I got to ask all the questions, which yeah. is great. So you were happy. And my first question, most people think the peace process is stalled. Is that correct? 
they would not be wrong if they thought that. Uh, we have not had a significant peace process in many, many years. The last actual negotiations that were uh, held under during the Barack Obama administration uh, did not achieve anything. They didn't even really get off the ground. I mean, uh, you had Benjamin Netanyahu, the leader of the Israeli prime minister, with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, and they could barely see eye to eye on how to begin the talks. In other words, uh, Netanyahu sort of insisted that there would be recognition of a Jewish state sort of at the start of the talks, and the Palestinians feel like this is something that might, if at all, be um, you know, a negotiating card and not something that like you would establish as a precondition. Palestinians would demand that Israel stop settlements before actually moving ahead on the talks. Israel would say, we don't want preconditions. And so they could barely see eye to eye on how to begin making any progress, although there was a negotiating team. But the point is that those talks completely stalled. And before that, the previous negoti- negotiations were in 2008. So a good five, six years before that. They failed as well, partly because the prime minister at the time, Ehud Olmert, was facing serious corruption investigations. And before that, there were no serious negotiations because there was a violent intifada following the previous negotiations in the summer of 2000. The intifada was a Palestinian uprising against Israeli control of this region. Yes, this, this, uh, the Intifada was the second such uprising. The first Intifada was the uprising of the Palestinians in the late 1980s, starting in 1987, 20 years after Israel captured the West Bank and Gaza and other territories, of course, but Israel subsequently gave those back. Um, but the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem have been under Israeli occupation. And five years, six years after that, the Oslo process happened, and this was a, an agreement of sorts that was actually a declaration of principles. It was not a peace agreement. It was, this, it was a declaration of principles to start a process of giving Palestinians more autonomy uh, under Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin on the Israeli side and the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. Of course, Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated. Two years later, he paid with his life, partly because of far right-wing opposition to that process. Negotiations stalled, uh, started again. Again, we're going fast-forwarding through history to 2000 when there were negotiations under uh, Prime Minister Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat, which which advanced the process as if it might get closer to the idea of a full peace agreement. They were negotiating at that time for a full peace agreement that would have given uh, Palestinians independent statehood, but that process failed, fell apart. That was in July of 2000. And shortly after that, the second intifada the second Palestinian uprising broke out, and it was much more violent than the first. And so for about four years, there were a series of uh, Palestinian suicide bombings inside Israel. Uh, Israel reoccupied parts of the West Bank after it had partially withdrawn during the Oslo process. Uh, The process, uh, in terms of negotiations, completely stalled. And, And then the next major event, which I guess, you know, we need to understand in order to figure out the situation now is that in 2005, Israel decided under then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon to unilaterally withdraw its settlements and army from within the Gaza Strip. So if, you know, the Palestinian areas comprise the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, the small coastal enclave of Palestinians, Israel dismantled about 8,000 settlers or who were living in settlement communities um, inside the Gaza Strip and pulled out the army from inside Gaza. Having said that, Israel continues to control exits, entrance, movement of people and goods, population registry, uh, land, air, and sea crossings, including fishing waters. And, uh, you know, so still maintains what the UN has called effective control over who goes in and out and what goes in and out of Gaza. So we have these two peoples living side by side. Um, Israelis, predominantly Jewish, Palestinians, predominantly Muslim. 
And one of the really big problems is that both sides have such a difficult time talking to one another and even recognizing the existence of one another. And this is 70 years after Israel became a nation in 1948. Yeah. Well, Israel would say it became a nation 2,000 years ago, but a state in 1948. Uh, This is not unique to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Oftentimes when you have an ethno-nationalist conflict, each side does not truly believe the other side is a nation. And if it's not really a nation, it doesn't really deserve a state. And it's not unique to Israel thinking that about the Palestinians because, you know, many Palestinians also think that about the Jews. So I think it's not fair to be so categorical and say each side simply denies the other's existence. Some people on each side deny some aspect of the existence of either a nation and therefore the justification for a state. And of course, those people seem to hold sway because they haven't been able to recognize each other's right to exist. But I think that on the practical level, there's a lot more acceptance than we realize. In other words, I think the Palestinians by and large realize that Israel as a state is here to stay. I think the Middle East was, you know, Middle East and other Arab countries were forced to accept that after 1967. I think it was a big shift in the mentality of how they viewed Israel. You know, it's not going away. And on the Israeli-Jewish side, I think, you know, largely since the Oslo years, what we call the Oslo years, from 1993 through the 90s, there has been an understanding that the Palestinians aren't going away. And I think for many Israelis, there's a general understanding that they probably should have self-determination. But from the Israeli perspective, they'll say, well, we simply can't trust them right now. The security threats are too grave. They have not proven themselves capable of self-governance without threatening our existence. And each side experiences that about the other. Do you think most Israelis accept the concept that there should be a Palestinian state? Well, that is a uh, $64 million question because uh, as a public opinion researcher, I track public opinion on this stuff on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side. On the Israeli side, there was no such understanding among the vast majority of Israelis throughout most of the history until the early 90s. So in the late 80s and early 90s, during the time of the Palestinian uprising and up to the signing of the Oslo Accords, the percentage of Israelis who agreed that there should be a Palestinian state started to creep upward from a small minority of roughly 20%, up to the point where you had over 60% of Israelis who support a two-state solution or the establishment of a Palestinian state next to Israel. But I have to say that in recent years, we're seeing a, a, a creeping erosion of that support among Israelis and Palestinians. Before we get to that, how much of a breakthrough was the Oslo Accords? These were secret negotiations that were shepherded by the Norwegian government. Yeah, I think they were breakthrough uh, in the sen- in, in two major ways. One was the legitimization of uh, Yasser Arafat's authority to represent the Palestinians and to sort of be brought in from the cold as somebody who had simply been viewed as a terrorist and nothing else. And I think that the Oslo Accords legitimized the idea of Yasser Arafat, but in general that the Palestinians were a people with a national leader, right? So it upped their status. It upped their status. And I do think it was a breakthrough in changing the mentality of Israelis, realizing that the Palestinians could not be governed by Israel forever. There would probably need to be a second entity that is not Israel's entity, and that ultimately meant division of the land. The Oslo Accords led to, if not the acceptance of the principle of two-state solution, certainly that being talked about much more. Yes. And here we are in 2018. Is there any alternative to a two-state solution? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that why do we need an alternative? I mean, it 
took a long time for the idea of two states to actually be seen as a legitimate concept and be spoken of in those terms, two-state solution. What happened was, during that period of time, the Israeli settlement project has continued to expand. Um, and the number of settlers between the year 2000 and now, where we are now, is about double. We're talking about nearly 600,000 settlers. Israeli settlements are in land which has traditionally been thought of as Palestinian. Not just traditionally thought of. It's the land where most Palestinians live. Okay, There are about 1.5 million uh, Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel, but the 4.7 million Palestinians uh, outside of Israel's actual Israel proper all live in the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, these are areas that are populated, uh, you know, by a vast majority of Palestinians. So they are traditionally thought of that way, but that's also where they actually reside. And these are what have been called the occupied territories, or at least the West Bank is an occupied territory. Yeah, I, I'm going to uh, take issue with calling this into question. Israel runs a military occupation. In other words, Israel has not annexed that territory. It has not extended Israeli civil law to that territory. And the Palestinians are stateless. Therefore, what we're talking about is a regime of a military occupation. This is How Do We Fix It? We're in Tel Aviv, and I'm speaking with Israeli public opinion analyst and strategic consultant Dalia Shenlin. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There has been talk about a confederation. Can you explain how that might work? Yeah, I mean, the, from shifting from the idea of two completely independent separate states with a hard barrier between them. Uh, and that is has been the paradigm. That hard two-state separation has been the paradigm, again, sometime after the Oslo Accords, Camp David negotiations of 2000, up until recently when I think a group of people, it's not just me, but a number of people. And, and even this idea is not totally new from now. There have been, there's been talk about confederation approaches earlier as well recognizing that these two populations have become extremely intertwined. And the right. geography is, we're talking about a tiny area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, that if it's divided as, uh, with, you know, as the two-state solution would, would implement it with a hard barrier, possibly a wall, I mean, there already is a wall, that it would essentially make life impossible in a way, because you'd have to imagine the dislocation of at this point, hundreds of thousands of settlers, by minimum numbers, maybe 150, 160,000 settlers. And you would end up constraining the Palestinians to a tiny little landlocked area, other than Gaza, which is on the sea, but they would have very you know, difficult, difficulty connecting. You would, you would sort of lock them in to tiny little um, 
self-governed bubbles of land, I should say, or islands, oasis of land, surrounded by settlers, and they would have no ability to actually move. How big is Gaza? How small is Gaza? Gaza is about 26 miles uh, from north to south, and the width of it is... Very narrow. <laughs> I don't know if I can remember if I can tell you the actual kilome- you know, kil- kilometers offhand, but it is among the densest, most you know, most densely populated areas in the world, um, and it has um, close to two million people living there. So, so the confederation. So the confederation idea. I mean, the, this is a recognition of the fact that these populations are extremely intertwined, and that to separate them would cause a major rupture. And it's hard to even imagine for an American what it would mean to be locked into your neighborhood, not even Mm. locked into your city, not even locked into your state, but locked into your neighborhood. It affects every aspect of social life, family life, commercial life, makes it very hard to develop a real economy. And so the idea of a confederation is to say there need to be two self-governing national identities, national entities, right? You're not going to get Palestinians to live under an Israeli identity, and you can't really force Israelis to you know, merge with Palestinian society. They need to be separate self-governing entities with two separate governments, two separate legislatures, uh, and, and two separate identities. But they can have a softer separation. There can be a more open border that allows for movement and flexibility so that people can get around and Palestinians aren't locked into a tiny little area surrounded by settlers. Uh, Israelis are allowed to go to all the places, some of which they're currently not allowed to go to in the West Bank, which hold many of their holy sites. As a tourist, for me, it's much easier with an American passport to get into the West Bank than it is for someone from Israel. Right. I mean, theoretically, as an Israeli citizen, I'm not allowed to go to many areas of the West Bank. Some of those areas are where major, you know, important religious sites are located. Um, So that's part of it. But it's also a matter of uh, disconnecting residency from citizenship. In other words, because there is a spillover of the Israeli population in Palestinian areas, but the Palestinians need that whole territory for their state, you could allow Israeli settlers to stay there as permanent residents so that they would have to live as law-abiding citizens under Palestinian law, but they can have citizenship only in Israel. So they can't vote in the Palestinian government. They can only vote in the Israeli government. And of course, they don't lose their Israeli citizenship. Uh, And by the same logic, Palestinians, some number, and these numbers, this would have to be worked out in an actual negotiation uh, of how many Israelis and how many Palestinians could live on the other side, but some Palestinians could live on the Israeli side as permanent residents. They could not vote in the Israeli parliamentary elections, so they could not change the national character of the Israeli government by their numbers, but they would exercise their full uh, civil rights national rights in the Palestinian parliament, but they would have to live as law-abiding citizens in Israel. And this helps to relax another one of the major obstacles to achieving uh, any sort of agreement, which is the problem of Palestinians who were made refugees in 1948 and 1967, some of whom demand the return, the right to return to their old homes. Explain a little more what the concept of confederation involves. So far, my takeaway is borders would be softer. It would be easier for people to move around. Yeah. Let me explain that the idea of a two-state confederation is not the same as a federation like the U.S. where you have a single government. This is about two states with two separate governments who willingly enter into some sort of an association where they have a more open border and share certain sovereign powers uh, because they have decided to. Has it been tried anywhere else? There are different models that 
may not be called a confederation, but actually function in this way, and or, or certainly have certain elements of it. Uh, one of them is right in front of our eyes, and that's the European Union. And with all the troubles of the European Union, we have to remember that it was put into place to, to preserve the peace after what was arguably the world's most violent conflict ever. And this is where you, you, know, you have a society of a number of countries who have retained their sovereignty and their borders. A soft border does not mean no border, but they have agreed to cooperate. They have agreed to create a more flexible system of their borders so people can move easily within them, and they allow people to reside without citizenship, but to have all the rights and responsibilities of permanent residency in another country. But they continue to be citizens of their own countries. And I think the other main aspect to keep in mind is that it would prevent, it, it, it proposes not to divide Jerusalem. So the two-state solution involves giving half of Jerusalem to Palestinians, half to Israel, and that makes it a divided city, possibly with an international boundary in running right through the middle of it. And the idea is that a city where people both have to have their sense of national identity, symbolic identity, but also live day to day should not have a wall running through it. You're politically from the left. Is there anybody on the conservative side who's going, hey, this sounds kind of interesting? I think there are more, there are more people on the conservative side, uh, certainly in, in Israel, who are open to this than they are to a typical two-state division. Because the right wing in Israel is committed to settlements, uh, and they consider the idea of dismantling settlements to be expulsion against their will from territory they consider holy, uh, or many of them consider holy. They're not all settlers or religious, but the right wing in Israel is largely committed to being on the land in the West Bank. So they are much more open to this uh, because of the different approach on settlers and because they deeply reject the division of Jerusalem, as do most Israelis and as do most Palestinians. Nobody really wants the division of Jerusalem for religious, political, and lifestyle reasons. How, reasons. Fa- how far along is this confederation idea, or how new is it? Is it just beginning to seed? Uh, I think that it's just beginning to seed in policy circles and just beginning to take, you know, to sort of seed, as you put it, in the public on both sides, although at different paces on both sides. The argument against this is it would require a huge change of thinking on the part of of many people, including Palestinians, who want to push Israelis into the sea. Yeah, I think the number of Palestinians who want to push Israelis into the sea is highly exaggerated because, again, when we do survey research on both sides, because one of the projects I do is a joint Israeli-Palestinian survey, and we ask this question about what the actual goals are of each side, uh, and we give them a range of very extreme goals to much more moderate goals. And on both sides, it's only a minority, a small minority of roughly 10% or a little bit more, but not much more, who wish to see the most extreme solution, like for Palestinians pushing all the Israeli Jews out, you know, or for Israelis, you know, um, pushing all Palestinians out of the region. That's a very small minority of both populations. However, of course, the perception of each side looking at the other side is that they think the majority hold those perceptions. Have both the Palestinians and the Israelis in recent years been poorly led? Uh, Well, I suppose it depends on which side of the political map you're on. Uh, From where I stand, Israel has been very poorly led because I think that the the current prime minister, who is Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been in power actually longer than any other Israeli prime minister, has essentially let the situation fester. I mean, Israel is the stronger party. Israel has full sovereignty, is a completely integrated member of the international community, has a one of the strongest armies in the world, and, and and of course the world's most powerful country as its biggest ally. Benjamin Netanyahu not only has all those things, but he has legitimacy. 
he is a popular prime minister. Relative to a four-term incumbent, his numbers are enviable. With that level of legitimacy, though, especially from the hardline right, he would have been able to move ahead on uh, bold leadership on you know, advancing a peace agreement. And he has chosen not to do so. In other words, he has put up obstacles and he has uh, not taken you know, any courageous steps in that direction. So that's the Israeli side. Right. The Palestinian side. <laughs> the Palestinian society still lives under the ultimate authority of the Israeli army. So even, in, even though there is a Palestinian government... Uh, it ha- it is largely powerless, um, and as a result, it's sort of dysfunctional. Their parliament hasn't met in years. There haven't been elections in 12 years, and that becomes a proto-authoritarian regime because they have not had democratic elections. Uh, given the insecurities that are inherent in a situation like that, as people become increasingly angry at the Palestinian Authority, the leader, Mahmoud Abbas, is basically afraid to make any bold steps. So the idea that a, that a moderate or a peacemaker who inevitably must make compromises could emerge from that situation is, is, is hard to imagine. It's not that hard to imagine because Mahmoud Abbas was that leader. He was a negotiator in the Oslo Accords. He was always connected to the peace camp within Fatah. And when he became uh, Palestinian president in the mid-2000s, it seemed that he was clearly the so-called partner Israel had been saying it didn't have up until then because he was so committed to the two-state peace process. Um, Unfortunately, throughout that entire time, the negotiations failed and Palestinian life became increasingly constrained, certainly in their ability to move around the region, um, the, the, the very arcane permit system that it makes it almost impossible for people to live a normal life. Um, essentially, there was no reward that Mahmoud Abbas ever got for entering into negotiations in Israel. Conditions for Palestinians just got worse. And that severely undermined his legitimacy on the part of the, you know, from Palestinian society. So I think that the, the point is that it, the, the ongoing stagnation of the political process has severely undermined Mahmoud Abbas's legitimacy, whereas he should have been exactly that leadership that you're saying is unlikely to emerge. We, it's not that it won't emerge, it's that it was there and it has declined. Do you have hope? I do have hope because I work in other countries and I've worked in other post-conflict societies, some of which people were convinced could never be resolved and have reached a level of um, post-conflict stability. I don't think there is such a thing as perfect peace. Which countries? I work in the former Yugoslavia a lot. Now, this is a very, very unstable region. It's People who live there are always looking at this with um, very dire predictions. But the fact is that in Bosnia, which was the scene of the worst carnage since World War II on European soil, there has been a peace agreement in place since 1995. And it is very imperfect, and there are lots of problems, and everybody predicts an explosion any day. But for 20 years... People have not killed each other for ethno-nationalist reasons, which is a lot more than we can say for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where we have an average of over one person dying per day. If you include the three wars in Gaza in recent years, we have a level of violence that's intolerable. And when you look at a conflict like the Balkans, even Kosovo and Serbia, which is still unresolved, right? There still is no peace agreement. So your work in the former Yugoslavia has given you a sense that perhaps things could get better here? You know, the way I look at it, 
when you are surpassed in conflict resolution by the Balkans, you're in deep trouble because the Balkans is a very complicated and historically very fractious region. And if they can do better, we can do better. Now, of course, they're not the only region that's done better. Colombia recently signed a peace agreement, uh, which was very troubled. You know, the public re- rejected in a referendum. Um, this is an agreement between the government and the FARC. Yeah, after a civil war that after killed tens of thousands of people. 50-year-long civil war, millions of, refu- of displaced people. I mean, this was extremely disruptive. They've reached a peace agreement. Northern Ireland, of course, is more hopeful because they've had a peace agreement in place since 1998. You know, we can do better. And I think that if we accept that the political process right now is extremely frozen, but we have a goal that is worth reaching, we can think about the steps that need to be put into place to eventually get there. And that makes me hopeful. So working on that makes me hopeful because I think it is an approach towards resolving this conflict to the extent that any conflict can be really resolved that actually um, not only can work, but I think sounds a lot more fun. I mean, I want to be able to travel around the whole region. I want to get to know Palestinians better. I think it's healthier for human society when we have more, not less contact. I do think it's fair that both societies have their national identity in place. And this gives expression to both of those human needs to kind of build walls around our identity, but also cross them. (laughs) Dahlia Scheidlin, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, Richard, I was so interested in your conversation with Dahlia Shendlin. You know, I think we're all so used to just getting comfortable with our pessimism. And I'm not sure I think this idea is necessarily doable, but we need to do something. And at least getting the conversation started again is probably the, the, the first step. And you and I are old enough to remember pretty clearly the Balkans conflict, the ethnic cleansing and, and the horrible killings that were going on in the Balkans. In Sarajevo and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And, and Dalia Shendlin worked on that. And at the time, it seemed that, that peace was very remote. And it seemed difficult to imagine what could possibly happen to bring the different sides together in some way. And yet... There's relative peace, even even if there's a lot of distrust. Yeah, I, and I think sometimes people don't appreciate how a pretty good solution or a not terrible solution might be better than the status quo. You don't always get perfection. Sometimes the most you can hope for is a reduction in hostilities, a reduction in the killing. And sometimes that can lead to better conversations and more progress. We saw something similar in Ireland, you know, people forget it wasn't that long ago that bombs were going off in the London subways and people were being assassinated right and left. And the, the Brits were were rolling down streets in Northern Ireland in armored vehicles. So, you know, that was not that long ago. And it's not perfect now, but they've come a long, long way. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the Good Friday peace accords that former Senator George Mitchell had a lot to do with. And just as with the Oslo peace accords, it was an outside party that played a key role in trying to bring the sides together. So perhaps that will happen sometime in the future. I think one of the problems is, and there are many, is the intransigence on both sides. Certainly, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is a dominant figure and recently won, I think, a fourth term uh, as prime minister, has really neglected peace. One thing I thought was really interesting in her analysis is how he has been at once an incredibly effective politician at maintaining his own power, and yet very reluctant to use it 
for anything bold. What a missed opportunity that has been. His presidency has been, I think, for for both Israelis and Palestinians. The most hopeful thing I took away from Dahlia Shenlin and her idea of confederation is the prospect that maybe the borders could be softened and that there may be a solution to the settlement crisis and also uh, the Palestinian demand for right of return, that perhaps there's some kind of compromise that could be worked out very distant at the moment. Though. Yeah, and that to me is the biggest stumbling block. I, I re- I'm really interested in her analysis about why some kind of confederation makes such economic sense. And when people work together and they're, they're tied up together in businesses and stuff, that, that will tend to lead towards tolerance. So I, I think that all sounds really good. I think that the notion that Palestinian refugees from you know, anywhere in the region will have a right to return, obviously this has been a, a hallmark of the Palestinian demands from the get-go, and it's been the major sticking point for the Israelis from the get-go. It's a problem for a real reason. Now, she would counter that, well, so are the settlements in the West Bank. Yeah, I agree. Those settlements were uh, provocative, yeah. to say the least. And the fact that they've continued and grown so much in the recent decades is, is, you know, makes the problem worse. But the fact that one thing's bad doesn't make the other problem go away. And I think that for Israelis, the notion that under this idea— People would have a right of return, but they would only be allowed to vote in Palestinian elections, obviously. Right, so it's that, not like the right of return that the, that, the, uh, that the Israelis have rejected in the past, where anybody gets to be an Israeli citizen. You see why they're opposed to it, even though— Residency, not citizenship. Right. But the idea that you know, these many millions of people are going to come back to live in Israel, vote in Palestinian elections, I think there would be a legitimate fear among Israelis that that would radicalize— and, and push the Palestinian contingent to be, to be more radical, less accommodating, less willing to do the give and take that this kind of confederation would require. Now, I could be flat wrong about that. These might be economic migrants who are all the more willing to compromise and just want a place with good jobs and, and decent schools and, and, and not push the country their, of Palestine into a more radical direction. But it's a really open question, and I could really understand the Israelis, even ones who like this idea in principle, balking at it. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. So are we in favor of this or not? Yeah. I think as 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 a proposal that should be discussed, yes, because it in, involves respect on both sides. I mean, right. it, it's a very small country. That's one of the things I learned there. I and, mean, for yes. instance, the driving time between the two largest cities of Israel, Tel Aviv and, and Jerusalem, less than an hour. Well, it depends on the traffic. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> the traffic is pretty bad. But also the driving time between major Israeli cities and major Palestinian centers is also, you know, in some cases we're talking 20, 30 minutes minutes. Yeah. And so these people are living side by side. Mm -hmm. So there has to be some way eventually for them to live together, even if they don't like each other. And here's the thing that I think doesn't get enough attention. We need some change that will, that will release the entrepreneurial potential of the Palestinian people. Everywhere in the world, Palestinians go, they're extremely successful economically. It's such a great point. And it's so stark the economic divide between the communities. And you see it when you drive through the occupied territories. Uh, many of the villages and towns, great, great, uh, great amounts of poverty. Right. And yet Israel itself, booming. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think a more liberal economic policies, maybe this comes in stages, more liberal economic policies first, more prosperity, that might help the other problems. Economic growth sometimes can lead to political growth and more political freedom. And how do we fix it? Okay. I'm Richard Davies. <laughs> another, another try at the end. <laughs> Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and the music is by Lou Stravinsky. This is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio podcasts for clients, nonprofits, and businesses. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Should we put in a plug? You've been doing all these great projects. You never plug your your uh, your podcast that you're doing, um, Davies Content yeah. Company. Yeah, and, and one of them that's just about to launch, I'm really excited about, is One Day University, which uh, is is a is a company that offers people the chance to spend a day with really great lecturers from different universities and colleges. We're doing a podcast with them. We've also been working with IOM, which is the UN Migration Agency, on a podcast telling the personal stories of migrants Which and refugees. Are really, really powerful and moving. And, and last but not least, uh, a, a podcast about classic cars for Haggerty. Working with Larry Webster, my old friend who used to be editor of Road and Track magazine. Yeah, so a lot of fun. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.